Tonight, I'd like to speak about my favorite person, the Buddha. <laughs> During the course of the retreat, many of the talks speak of the Buddha, make reference to him. There are statues of him sitting, of him standing, of him lying. He's all over the place. How is it possible to actually establish a relationship with the Buddha? Who was he? Who is he? What's the relevance of the Buddha in our lives? The Buddha is a symbol of reality. Symbol of reality on all the different levels. First, he was a human being, an historical person who lived at a particular time, born to a certain set of parents, lived for 80 years and died. When we understand the Buddha as an historical person, as a human being, it's possible for us to relate to him as a fellow wayfarer, relating to his struggles, to the quest, to the journey. <coughs> Buddha is a symbol on another level of reality as well. It can be thought of as a symbol of a great universal archetype. That is the archetype or the symbolic figure of the savior or the warrior or the hero. And we can see his life, understand his life as a great mythological journey. It's a journey of a great myth of unfolding of seeking, of questing, of realizing, of helping. Myth has a great power, which often in Western culture we don't honor so much or appreciate, although in more traditional cultures it plays such a powerful role. So the power of myth is that it universalizes the particular. So it's a way, it's a channel, it's a connection for each of us to connect in our own personal lives, in the particular events, our own particular story. It's a way to connect with more universal principles, more universal guidelines. So the story of the Buddha and of his life, seen as a great mythological journey, can help us to see our own lives in that same way. We begin to put our own quest, our own journey, in a much larger context than we might normally. Joseph Campbell, who was a great student of the world's myths, talked about this mythological journey in four stages. And he used the life of the Buddha as a prime example the interweaving of the particular human level with the archetypical, the mythic one. The first stage in this journey he calls the call to adventure. Destiny summoning the universal hero. The wonderful 
sound of trumpets to that. (laughs) The call to adventure. In the story of the Buddha, this call to adventure happened twice. It happened once in many lifetimes previous to his last rebirth when he was a hermit practicing different kinds of meditation in a forest. And at that time, a former Buddha had appeared and was teaching, he was known as the Buddha Dipankara, that was his name. He was proceeding through the town and the city with a great retinue of monks and nuns and lay followers. And this hermit, who was later to become Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha, (laughs) he came to meet Dipankara as he was walking along. And people were preparing the road. He was so inspired by the presence and the power and the aura of peacefulness and compassion said that as he was preparing his section of the road for Buddha Dipankara to walk upon, he didn't quite finish it in time. So as that Buddha came walking, he laid himself down for the Buddha to step on him so as not to get muddy. And as the legend has it, Dipankara recognized that hermit as a future Buddha and prophesized that many lifetimes right, from that moment he would attain to Buddhahood or full realization. It was from that moment that that hermit became what is called a bodhisattva, that is, a being destined for full enlightenment, for Buddhahood. That was his first call, call to adventure call to freedom. The second one happened in his last birth as a human being when he was born in northern India. He was born to a princely family. India at that time was broken up into small kingdoms. When he was born, the soothsayers or the fortune tellers, the astrologers of the time, they saw the young infant, Siddhartha, and looked at all the signs, and they saw that he would either become a universal monarch or a Buddha or an enlightened one. Not surprisingly, his father wanted him to become the universal monarch. He wasn't so into his son becoming a recluse. And so as the young prince was growing up, he surrounded him with all kinds of pleasures. He had palaces built for the summer and the winter and the spring, all the seasons, filled with dancing girls and all kinds of sense delights in hoping to keep Siddhartha firmly rooted in the life of the world. Then something happened. What happened was the appearance of four heavenly messengers. The Prince Siddhartha had decided he wanted to go out into the city to see what real life was about. As he went out, these four messengers appeared to him. The first of these heavenly messengers was a sick person. He had never seen sickness before. And so he asked his charioteer, what, what is this? And the charioteer said, that's disease, that's sickness, it's illness. And the princess, does that happen to everyone? The charioteer responded, sometime or another in people's lives, that's what happens to the body. And imagine seeing illness for the first time seeing the body in a state of disease, it awakened something in him. But one messenger wasn't enough. He went out on another day 
and he saw a very old person, really 90, 100 years old, bent over on crutches, very feeble. And again he was surprised, and again he asked his charioteer, what's that? It was explained to him about old age, and the universality of that. Planted another seed in the prince's mind. Went out on a third time. The third of the heavenly messengers was a corpse. You have to understand this happening, again, both in a the human story of it, just as we become aware for the first time of illness and old age and death, and also the mythic proportions of it. Just imagine the power of understanding death for the first time, really understanding it, understanding the transitory nature of this body. When we've led lives so attached to it, so identified with it, and to see in that immediate and powerful way what actually happens to the body as it becomes a corpse. The fourth time the Buddha went out, the, the prince, to become a Buddha, he went out and he saw a monk, somebody who had renounced the world. And that was the last of the heavenly messengers which inspired in him that call, that seeking, that quest to investigate and discover the nature of this experience. What is it that life is about? What keeps it going? What's the cause of people getting sick and old and dying? It's interesting to reflect on our own call to adventure. We're all partaking of this great mythological journey. And it's not mythological in the sense of illusory, it's mythological in the sense of universal. We're all tapping in, connecting, living this great unfolding. And just as the prince at Arthur Gautama had this call to destiny. Each of us has had that. And to reflect in each of our lives, what is it that brought us to the path, to the journey? What was the call for us? Because sometimes, in the course of our practice, you go from sitting to walking to knee pain to restlessness, we forget, you know, we forget that deep, deep inspiration which somehow has brought us to this journey of understanding. And it's very rare when we look around at our society and culture, it's very few people who have had that call to realign ourselves with our own sense of vision and purpose of what we're doing, because it's very deep. It's not insignificant. The second stage of this great journey, after the call to adventure, the hero or heroine summoned to their destiny, the second stage is called the Great Renunciation. That is, once we have a sense of the mystery of life, the mystery of death, and that urge, that deep urge to understand, then comes the actual practice. Somehow we have to detach ourselves to some extent from the pulls and attractions and attachments of the world in order to go inward, in order to see, in order to uncover. This is called the development of parame. Parame means perfections. Developing the perfections of mind. Depending on which list of the Abhidhamma you read, 
There are either six perfections or ten perfections. There's generosity and morality and patience and concentration and effort and wisdom. And the Bodhisattva spend lifetimes developing one or another of these perfections. Imagine spending a lifetime devoted to the cultivation of patience or the cultivation of virtue. You know, our minds are such such a vast and limitless creative energy. And mostly we think of it in such narrow terms, such limited terms, you know, of how we feel in a particular moment. Not seeing that there are powerful directions that are taking place. And that it's actually possible to cultivate over lifetimes, to cultivate in a very powerful way these, these perfections of mind. To a lesser extent, in a more limited time frame, you take this three-month retreat, you can see how it works. And if you have that understanding, it helps to relate to practice in a more balanced way. How at different times, different of the perfections are being cultivated. For example, at times, it's difficult, a lot of difficulties, a lot of hindrances. And so what's being cultivated at that time is patience, is forbearance. Just the willingness to be with it, to stay with it, that steadiness. At times the concentration is strong. At times the insight is sharp. If you begin to see what's happening in the context of the perfections, and what it is that's being cultivated at a particular time, it gives a sense of meaning. It gives a sense of direction to what we're doing. In the time from the hermit meeting Dipankara to the lifetime of Siddhartha Gautama, all that time the Buddha was known as a Bodhisattva. And there's a collection of tales called the Jataka tales which tell stories of the Bodhisattva in various lifetimes as he's cultivating various perfections. Sometimes there's rebirth in the human plane, sometimes in the heavenly plane, sometimes in the animal plane. There are stories of him as a monkey and as a deer and a rabbit. So one story which illustrates his perfection of patience. Very powerful story which perhaps will put your knee pain in a different perspective. It's called the parable of the saw. It seems one time, as a Bodhisattva, he was practicing in the forest. He was practicing patience. That's what he decided to do for that lifetime. And at that time, the country was ruled by a very wicked king, very cruel. This king had his harem and courtesans. One day they all went out to the forest, and the harem sort of wandered off by themselves. And they met the hermit, and he started giving them a discourse, and they became very interested and inspired. When the king woke up from his nap and saw that his harem had wandered off, he was upset. And so he sent his soldiers out to find out where they went. They come back with the harem and the hermit, the bodhisattva. And the king was infuriated. And so he ordered his soldiers to saw off the arms and legs of the hermit. And the Buddha, as he was recounting the story of this particular lifetime, said that even then, the parami, the perfection of 
patience was so great that he harbored no ill thought toward this king as his arms and legs were being sawn off. He said, those of you who are truly following this path, even if that should be happening, should strive not to harbor thoughts of anger or ill will or irritation. (laughs) So next time somebody next to you is making a little noise (laughs) and you want to strangle them, (laughs) you might remember the parable of the saw. At one time it said the Bodhisattva saw a tigress who was too ill to feed her cubs because she was sick and so he threw himself off and he offered his body to be food for the tigress so she would be able to feed the cubs. Many, many stories. Take them as you like, whether metaphors or literally. They all point to a sense of cultivating those qualities of mind, the same qualities that we're cultivating in our practice here. We're all in this second stage of the great, the great journey. That is the renunciation of our attachments, the letting go of all those things that we hold on to and grasp at for the sake of understanding, for the sake of freedom. The third stage of this mythological journey, after the call to adventure, the summons to destiny, the great renunciation and the development of perfections, of paramis, of qualities of mind, is known as the great struggle. And in the life of the Buddha, this great struggle took two forms. When he left home, when he renounced the household life, he went and he practiced ascetic disciplines for six years. And you can read the description of the disciplines he practiced. If you're having trouble with eight precepts, I think it would be helpful to read some of those descriptions. Basically, he totally denied his body and he started eating less and less food till it was one ice every other week. And it's, it's said that when he reached in to touch his stomach, he could reach his backbone. And if he went to touch his back, he could feel his stomach. There are some wonderful images, Buddha, Buddha images. It's called the image of the emaciated Buddha. And they're very powerful powerful art form representing the extent to which he practiced these disciplines. Thinking, as was thought at that time, that that would be the way to subdue the ego, subdue the self. And he went to the limit, he went to the extreme, until he saw that that wasn't the way. All that was happening was that His body was getting weak, his mind was getting weak, it wasn't the path. But he had to do it to the fullest in order to understand that it didn't lead to the goal. After six years of that kind of struggle, he took some food, he gained his strength, and he sat down under what is now called the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya. And that's where the last great struggle took place. And it's described in terms of his struggle with Mara. I'd like to read to you from, it's a couple of paragraphs from Joseph Campbell describing in very mythological terms and imagery the struggle that night under the Bodhi tree. If you can listen and Baroque. And so you really have to just let your mind go into it. But it gives some sense of the struggle actually that we're all engaged in. 
It is a struggle. It's a struggle with the hindrances, the defilements of mind. Buddha once said that understanding oneself, coming to understanding, is more difficult than single-handedly defeating a thousand enemies a thousand times. Imagine yourself surrounded by a thousand enemies single-handedly defeating them and doing that a thousand times. What we're undertaking is something more difficult. And so we should respect our practice, really respect for what we're doing. This is the description of the Buddha's struggle under the Bodhi tree, set in these terms of the great mythology, enlightenment. For he was on his way to the great tree of enlightenment, the Bodhi tree, under which he was to redeem the universe. He placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree on the immovable spot and straightway was approached by Kama Mara, the god of desire and death. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant and carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army which extended twelve leagues before him, twelve to the right, twelve to the left, and in the rear as far as to the confines of the world. The protecting deities of the universe took flight, but the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree, and the god then assailed him, seeking to break his concentration. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder, and flame, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud and blistering sands, and the fourfold darkness. The antagonist now hurled against the Savior. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Gotama's perfections. Mara then deployed desire and lust, surrounded by voluptuous attendants. But the mind of the great being was not distracted. Kama Mara finally challenged Gotama's right to be sitting on the immovable spot flung his razor-sharp discus angrily and bid his towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars so that the elephant of the antagonist fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was dispersed and the gods of all the worlds scattered garlands." Quite a battle. I love that description. (laughs) And it is fantastic. But it's really the imagery of exactly what we're all engaged in. As we're sitting on our own immovable spot, how immovable is it? (laughs) As Kamamara hurls the hindrances and anger and desire and restlessness and irritation and doubt, it's the same battle as the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, the same struggle when we see that, when we can put it into that kind of context of understanding, it can give us a source of tremendous inspiration and energy. It universalizes our own particular struggle. The fourth stage 
after the call to adventure, the call to destiny, and the great renunciation, and the great struggle, is the great enlightenment. After the Buddha had vanquished the God, of thousands of his past lives, seeing beings born, living out their lives, and dying over and over and over again, directed by the karma of each of the actions to different destinies, seeing the circularity of samsaric existence over and over and over again, being born, living out a life, dying, being born, living out a life, dying through all the realms, began to see from that insight the insubstantiality, the endlessness of that circle. It wasn't going anyplace. He understood the karmic destiny of beings, that he himself through all those lifetimes and all beings were simply the heirs of their own karma and not understanding that, doing so many things out of ignorance, creating more suffering for themselves, more suffering for others, there grew in him this great and limitless compassion. Compassion for the ignorance which drives beings. said that what most moved the Buddha to begin teaching was seeing beings wanting happiness, wanting fulfillment, and yet through ignorance doing those very things which created more suffering. And so there arose in him this great compassion. And the third watch of the night came the understanding of the Four Noble Truths suffering, how attachment causes suffering, and the end of suffering, and the path to the end. Again, the legend has it, just as the morning star became visible, the Buddha was sitting there, in that moment of perceiving the morning star, he attained to full and complete enlightenment. said that his first words after the great opening, great enlightenment, he recited a verse. I traveled through the rounds of countless births, seeking but not finding the builder of this house. Sorrowful is repeated births again and again. O house builder, you have now been seen. You shall build no house again. Your rafters have been broken, your ridgepole shattered. Achieved is the end of craving. Mind has attained to freedom. O house builder, you have been seen. What is it that keeps building this house? Keeps us bound to the wheel of samsara, the wheel of life and death. The nature of the Buddha's enlightenment was to penetrate into the, into the cause of this continual samsaric existence. What keeps us going around and around? Nature of attachment, of craving, of grasping. It said that he stayed in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree for six or seven weeks, contemplating in various ways the Dharma, the truth. And then he started walking to a place called Sarnath, which is outside of Benares, to a deer park to teach 
the group of five ascetics with whom he had been practicing the ascetic disciplines, feeling them to be the most ripe for understanding. He walked and it took some time to reach Sarnath. And it was there that he gave the first sermon. The first sermon is called the Sermon or Discourse Setting the Wheel of the Law, the Wheel of Dharma in Motion. I don't know if you recall what was on the flag that we have up sometimes outside. It's the Dharma Chakra. Chakra means wheel. It's the wheel of Dharma, the wheel of law. And in his first sermon, the Buddha laid out in a very systematic way the foundation for the whole rest of his teaching. He set forth this wheel of law, this wheel of dharma, the wheel of truth. And in it he explained the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths and the teaching of selflessness, of egolessness. And one after the other, the five ascetics became liberated. Buddha was 35 when he was enlightened left home at the age of 29, practiced the six years of ascetic disciplines. 35, sat under the Bodhi tree, did battle with Mara, became awakened, the awakened one. Spent the next 45 years of his life teaching. Very shortly after he began his teaching, when he had his first 60 disciples who had become fully enlightened, he sent them out. And I'd like to read his instructions to these 60 disciples because it gives a sense of the connectedness the Buddha felt and the compassion with the world and with all beings. This is what he said to, to those monks. He said, Go forth, O bhikkhus, O monks, for the good of the many for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, benefit, and happiness of people and devas. Let not two go by one way. Teach the Dharma, excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, and excellent at the end. Proclaim the noble life, altogether perfect and pure. Work for the good of others, you who have done your duties. So always the practice was understood as bringing to perfection in oneself qualities of mind and extending it to others for the good of many, for the welfare of many. As you read through the texts and the discourses, one of the things that becomes most apparent and one of the characteristics of the Buddha is the perfection of skillful means. The power of the Buddha's mind was such that he knew intuitively, he could see the inherent tendencies of all beings, so knew always just the perfect teaching, what would be exactly right for that particular person to untangle the tangle, to untangle the knot. There's one story, I'll tell a few Buddha stories of how he worked with people. One that I think is my favorite has to do with a young monk who, who was ordained by his brother who was a fully enlightened monk, an arhant. This young monk was a dullard, really dull, dull mind, dumb mind, no, no intelligence. And his brother, the, the arhant, gave to this dullard one four-line verse of the teachings to memorize. That was his practice, to memorize those four lines. And he couldn't do it. He would 
he would memorize the first line, and then as he was memorizing the second, it would push the first out. You know? And as he was going on the third, it would push the second out. And months and months were spent you know, trying to do his practice. Everyone was getting frustrated. The dullard was getting frustrated. His brother was getting frustrated. So finally his brother said, I don't think this is for you. you know, I don't think you're capable of doing it. And so this poor dullard felt very sad you know, because he wanted to practice and he wanted to understand. So he was walking very dejectedly down the road you know, because his brother had said, it's hopeless and you might as well go home. The Buddha came to know what had happened. So as this poor dullard is walking down the road, you know, head hanging low, feeling very despairing and dejected, it said that the Buddha came up to him and in a very gentle and loving way started stroking, you know, just stroking the dullard and consoling him. And somewhere, I don't know if this is true or not, but somewhere I heard that the Buddha said, your brother can't kick you out of the order of monks. It's my order. It's not his order. <laughs> you can stay. And he gave him another kind of practice. He said, take a clean white handkerchief and stand out at noon in the sun and simply rub the handkerchief together with you, to rub it with your hands. And so the dullard thought he could do that. And then he took the handkerchief out the next day in the sun, he started rubbing it, and the handkerchief started getting dirty. And somewhere in the depths of the dullard's mind, right, he began to develop insight into the impurities of the body. Right? the impure nature of the body, just by rubbing this clean white handkerchief, it began to get dirty. And as he reflected on the impurities of the body, it said that his mind became dispassionate, let go, became enlightened. So tomorrow, if it's sunny, <laughs> somehow the Buddha knew that that was exactly the right meditation. That was what was going to connect, to open the mind. The story goes on in, in quite a bit of detail of how, as the dullard became fully enlightened, he also acquired great psychic powers, and how he went back and played all kinds of tricks on his brother. But that's <laughs> <laughs> There's another story where the Buddha used just another technique it seems that there was a monk who had come to one of his great disciples. The Buddha had two chief disciples, uh, Sariputta and Moggallana. One who was the chief in wisdom, the greatest in wisdom second to the Buddha, and Moggallana who was second only in power, second in power only to the Buddha. There were many stories about these two great disciples. Right, one of them had given to this monk the meditation on the 32 parts of the body and, and the, the impurities of the body. This monk was trying to develop it and cultivating it. He was not getting any place at all. He was getting more and more tight and more and more frustrated. The Buddha came to know. He saw into this monk's mind and he saw that for 500 lifetimes this monk had been a goldsmith and was used to working and fashioning with beautiful objects. And so contemplating the 32 parts of the body, there was no connection. There's no way for him to relate to it. So the story goes that the Buddha created it through his psychic power, a golden lotus, which underwent the process of change and decay. And this monk, in contemplating the impermanent of the beautiful, his mind opened and he became enlightened. And so each of us respond right, to different aspects, different ways, different, different techniques of practice. We find even within the, the context of this retreat, it's like there's an intuitive understanding of what's appropriate at a particular time. You know, when to push forward, 
when to settle back, to relax, when to cultivate more concentration, when to cultivate more spaciousness. It's really learning to trust that intuitive sense because there's not just one straight and narrow path. The Dharma is vast and there are so many ways of cultivating understanding. Sometimes people are concerned about motivation and feel that their motivation is not pure. Practicing so you can tell some good stories when you leave. Practicing for the Deva worlds like I do. (laughs) 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 Whatever. After being in line, he went back to his hometown. His, par- his father was very upset with him. You know, <laughs> because he had given up universal monarchhood to become this wandering beggar and going through the streets begging for food. It took some processing to <laughs> <laughs> clear it up. But anyway, finally the family you know, got to realize what the Buddha had done. There's one cousin who was about to be enlightened, pardon, who was about to be married. (laughs) He was later to be enlightened. (laughs) He was about to be married to this beautiful princess. But the Buddha inspired him to go off to the forest and practice. And so he went, but rather reluctantly. He was practicing, walking and sitting, but always his mind was going back to the princess. And he couldn't concentrate at all. Finally, again, the Buddha came to know and came to his cousin, who was named Nanda. He said, let's, I want to show you something. Through his power of mind, gave Nanda a vision of the Deva realms, the heavenly realms, and all these beautiful celestial women. And Nanda got totally excited. <laughs> the Buddha asked him, who's more beautiful? You know, your princess back in the palace or these celestial, these celestial women? And he said, oh, compared to these celestial beings, the beings of light, radiant, oh, my princess back in the palace is like a wild monkey. <laughs> he was very fickle. <laughs> so the Buddha said, you practice as I tell you, and I promise you 500 of these celestial women. (laughs) Nanda practiced. (laughs) He did his walking. (laughs) Lifting, moving, placing. He was so motivated, you know. But as he practiced, as his mind got concentrated, as he became more attentive, as he developed more insight, the Dharma unfolded, he became enlightened, he became free. said that he went back and released the Buddha from his promise. It takes a Buddha mind to know exactly what is, is just right you know, for each person's practice. So in reading the stories, it just gives a tremendous sense of appreciation and respect and honor for the power of that mind and for the wealth of teachings that have come down to us today, the breadth of teachings of skillful means that are available. There are many, many more stories. I'd just like to close with the death of the Buddha. People were concerned about who was going to lead the order of monks and nuns. And the Buddha's last words had to do with making the Dharma your refuge, making the truth your refuge, not to look to anyone outside of yourself 
as your light, as your refuge. The look to the Dharma, to the truth, to understanding within oneself. And his last words before he died, subject to change are all conditioned things. Work out your liberation with diligence. They're powerful words. They're the last words of the Buddha, the the awakened one. The last thing that he communicated. Subject to change are all conditioned things. All conditioned things mean all phenomena of mind and body, of experience. It's all arising and passing. There's nothing substantial. There's no security. There's nothing to hold on to. So to take a look at how we bind ourselves, how we create bondage for ourselves out of attachment to things or to people or to mind states or to situations or to emotions, how we bind ourselves to this samsaric round of rebirth through attachment to those things which in their very nature must change. We create our own suffering out of ignorance, out of not seeing clearly. Subject to change are all conditioned things. Work out your freedom, your liberation with diligence. have an understanding of the precision of practice and the depth of practice and also to put it in a framework of understanding the greatness of the journey that we're all on. It's really, it's a universal, it's a universal journey, it's a universal undertaking. We're all part of that great unfolding. Do you have any questions? The thing that I want to ask is, is there a stage five? <laughs> is what happened there when the Buddha died? <laughs> there are many metaphors or images for it. Some of them have to do with a burning fire going out. Suffering ceasing. Other images have to do with a snowflake dissolving into the pure air. I'd suggest you wait and see. I'm not sure if you mentioned what happened to Buddha during the second watch of the night. And the other question is, what is the difference between a Buddha and an Arahant? Okay, in the second watch of the night, it said that he contemplated the law of karma and seeing other beings. In the first watch, he saw all his past lives. And in the second watch, it said that he saw the karmic unfolding of, of countless beings beings went to their destiny according to their uh, actions. The difference between an Arhant and a Buddha is not one of freedom and it's not one of peace because both an Arhant and a Buddha are freed from defilement, free of greed and free of hatred and free of delusion. A Buddha, because of the long evolution of bodhisattvahood, going through all those lifetimes of cultivating perfections, develops 
certain limitless kinds of powers and faculties which make a Buddha an incomparable teacher. So an Arhant has attained freedom of mind, the same freedom of mind, but not the same power of mind. Not the same power of compassion, not the same power of love, not the, not the same ability to see into the inherent tendencies of beings. Now those of you who may find yourselves sometime or another in India, the place where I did most of my practice was in Bodh Gaya, the place of the Bodhi tree and one of the most beautiful temples. It's a temple that actually as much as a building could be, is worthy of the event that happened there. It was wonderfully majestic and sitting in the area of the temple, and it's, it's one of the most beautiful places, gardens and flowers. For 2,500 years, that place has been um, venerated and practiced at, and this this enormous sense of it being the place of a great place of enlightenment, enlightenment radiating out from that spot. It's a very special, it's a very special pilgrimage. If, if ever you feel so inspired. There's. There's some controversy over what it was that he actually ate. He had gone to this uh, householder for for a meal. It was his last meal. And again, depending on the the version you read, some say it was diseased pork, and some say it was, um, you know, bad curry. I don't know. <laughs> oh, there's, there's a kind of mythological uh, flavor to that story also. The Buddha saw, <laughs> saw the food, and he accepted the food, but he, he told the householder to just serve him and to bury all the rest, because he saw no other being in the universe of men or gods or brahmas who could digest that food. <laughs> so, buried. And actually, as it turns out, he couldn't digest it. <laughs> but he knew that that was, that was the time for his parinibbana, the, the death. And as an example of his compassion, he sent some of his monks back to that householder, telling him that the offering two offerings of food have the most power. One was the offering of food just before the Great Enlightenment, and one was the offering of food before the Parinibbana. So as to remove from that person's mind the possibility of remorse or doubt. It said that in in the Buddha's time there was a monk who the Buddha had predicted would be the future Buddha, and it said that he is called Maitreya, now the Bodhisattva, that is a being about to become Buddha, and said that he's living in a Tusita heaven, which is the fourth of the heaven realms, and teaching Dharma as, as a bodhisattva. When does 
I mean, certainly one could see him also as a great bodhisattva, you know, but your intuition is as good as mine about that. Okay, one last question. What happens is that the motivation changes through the practice. And so even if you feel that your motivation is not ivory pure, and it's mixed, the, the actual unfolding of practice purifies the mind, purifies the motivation. And so whatever gets you going fine. Because through the power of awareness, it's awareness which purifies the mind. And just through the power of awareness, wisdom becomes deeper. Thank you. A couple of announcements.